the Nation magazine. This is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Elon Musk, a leader in the transition to renewable energy and a threat to democracy. David Nassau has our analysis. But first, the UAW wins a historic victory in their strike against GM. Harold Meyerson will comment on that and on Israel's war with Hamas. That's coming up in a minute. Last Friday, the UAW announced that GM had agreed that workers in their new EV battery factories will be covered under the union contract. This is a historic development in our transition to electric vehicles. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I also want to ask you your thoughts about Israel's war with Hamas. But first, I want to talk about the UAW. Exactly why is this a historic breakthrough for American workers? Well, to begin with, this is something that the auto companies in general, and GM in particular, were resisting. The theory being that they could get away with using the switch from fossil fuel to electrification of cars to further weaken the union and their workers. Those workers who have been in electrical vehicle plants and in bat electric battery uh, factories have been paid less and uh, not getting the benefits, etc., that UAW members get working for uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which is formerly Chrysler. So this kind of portends the future of this segment of the working class, since we're moving from fossil fuel-powered cars to electric-powered cars. Really, the most important long-range demand of the auto working union has been we want uh, the same benefits and pay and rights as we transition to electric cars. And we are on strike, buddy, in order to uh, make that clear and compel the auto companies to do that. And that's what GM has just agreed to. I thought the auto companies said it was impossible to include the battery plants in the contract because they were joint ventures. Do we know what made GM change their mind? Well, I don't think it was a rethink of that as such. I think the UAW, uh, in, in its sort of rolling strike, it was clear that its next target was going to be GM's most profitable factory, which is in Arlington, Texas, which makes uh, SUVs and, and other GM autos that are the most profitable for GM. And GM said, oh, gosh, well, OK, uh, we are the big uh, the big fish uh, uh, in these joint ventures. And so we're just going to say well, we were wrong. It's possible we can make, we can do that. And in fact, that's what they agreed to. Of course, I had never heard of GM Arlington, but you're right. They make full-size SUVs for Chevy, GMC, and Cadillac. Reuters says it's the most profitable manufacturing facility in the world. And let's note this is a union plant. I thought low-wage non-union plants were the most profitable, but apparently that's wrong. Well, you, you know, you haven't uh, reaped the profits from selling a, a large GM SUV. <laughs> yeah. 
In your piece for the prospect, you pointed to some historic parallels to this threat to strike the GM Arlington plant. Well, yes, really the founding strike for the UAW and the founding strike really for uh, industrial workers in America was the strike that uh, the UAW waged against General Motors in the winter of 1936-37, which was the strike that first led or compelled, I should say, General Motors to recognize the union at all. And they did that by sit-down strikes. They barricaded themselves into several GM factories in the largest concentration of GM factories, which then was in Flint, Michigan. But after about a month, they weren't really getting anywhere. And, uh, you know, the efforts of the company to dislodge them had not succeeded, but their effort to get a contract had not succeeded either. So they decided to, you know, take one factory, as the UAW just did now with the Arlington factory, and that was crucial to uh, making the parts that all other GM factories needed. Uh, In order to do that, since uh, they knew that GM had spies throughout, uh, you know, their union, they kind of let the word go out that they were going to occupy Chevrolet number nine in Flint. uh, And a pitched battle uh, took place in Chevrolet number nine. While uh, management wasn't looking and the company's goons weren't looking and the private police weren't looking, they then see Chevrolet number four, which was the parts factory uh, without which uh, GM could not really operate at all. So, you know, this is kind of, in a way, an echo of that. You pick the most strategically important factory. Back in 1937, they had to wage a pitch battle at another factory to be able to take the parts factory. But that worked then. And it appears that uh, going on the threat to go on strike in Arlington uh, had a real effect now. So this is all about GM, but the strike is also against Ford and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. Those two have not agreed to include their uh, EV battery workers in the new contract. Well, the whole pattern that, G, uh, that the UAW has generally used, which they're not quite doing this time, is to go on strike against one of the big three get what they want there, stop striking there, and keep striking at the other two. This could well play out this time as well. If they get uh, more of what they want from one of the big three, in this case, General Motors, they can say, okay, GM, let's sign a contract. And if the workers ratify it, then there's no strike against GM. But guess what? GM is doing fine at that point. They're back to full production. But Ford and Stellantis are still shut down. So that's the Uh, That's the logic to this. I checked the geography of GM's uh, battery plants. Right now, they only have one going. It's in Lordstown, Ohio, legendary site of class struggle. GM has two more battery plants under construction, one in Lansing, Michigan, where they already assembled the Chevy Camaro, and the other will be in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where there's also a giant GM uh, assembly plant that assembles the Cadillac SUVs. So these are going to be kind of sister operations to long-time existing GM assembly plants. That's right. But if they decide to build more, and given the shift to uh, electric cars, they will doubtless will decide to do more. This covers those as well. We have to talk about the politics of all this, that transition to electric vehicles has become a political issue in the 2024 election. 
Joe Biden is spending tens of billions on the transition, and Trump, people will recall, went to Michigan the same day Biden did. Biden became the first president ever to join a picket line at GM's Willow Run Parts Distribution Warehouse in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Trump spoke at a non-union plant invited by management, and there he denounced the EV transition as a hoax that is destroying American jobs. He said China is going to manufacture all the EV cars. So, so this agreement about GM's EV workers and battery workers coming under the UAW contract, politically, this is a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal because, as you said, Trump says, well, we're not going to really make any uh, EVs. And if we keep shifting to EV construction, well, no one's going to buy them and uh, China will dominate it. But, you know, what the UAW is demonstrating, uh, independent of Joe Biden, is that they can get good wages and good benefits for workers making electric vehicles. The Trump argument is becoming ignore what you're seeing, because yes. what you're seeing is a rush to construct uh, battery factories and electrical vehicle assembly factories in all parts of the nation, really, uh, including, you know, the Midwest, the South and the Southwest. And uh, Trump is saying, well, that's really not going to be here. But the more it's here, it's going to get a little harder to say it's not going to be here. The most surprising thing to me was Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri, who you will recall on January 6th, raised his fist in solidarity with the crowd of Trump supporters outside the Capitol and then ran from them when the mob invaded the Capitol. Josh Hawley visited the UAW picket line in Wentzville, Missouri, west of St. Louis, which produces Chevy and GMC trucks. He posed for pictures with striking workers carrying UAW signs. He tweeted those pictures with the caption, these workers deserve better pay, better benefits, and a guarantee their jobs will stay in America. Josh Hawley is up for re-election in 2024. And in Ohio, Republican Senator J.D. Vance visited a UAW picket line in Toledo, where GM assembles Jeeps. He posed for pictures with striking workers carrying UAW signs and tweeted those pictures with the caption, these workers have a simple message, good wages for an honest day's work. I'm proud to support them. This is something I don't think we've ever seen in the United States, Republican senators on UAW picket lines. What's going on here? We've seen nothing like this in the last 50 years. That's, that's for sure. What's happening is that the Republican Party base has become increasingly working class. I mean, they won them over largely on cultural issues, but there they are, and they have needs and demands that aren't simply cultural. If the Republicans were to banish all of the pronoun reforms, uh, <laughs> that wouldn't materially benefit working class Republicans. And so in areas where there is still a union presence and a UAW presence, which is not the South, which is not the Mountain West, but is states like Ohio and Missouri, you're beginning to get Republicans who have affiliated themselves with the working class that they that comes over on cultural issues and racial issues, now on economic issues as well. Hawley and Vance are both smart guys. Hawley is up in 24, Vance later on, but they kind of get 
that they need those votes, particularly in as much as they've lost the votes that are historically Republican among disproportionately college-educated voters. And so I don't know that this portends a future for the Republican Party generally, but for the Republican Party in areas where there's still a union presence, it may well. We have to talk about Tesla. The biggest EV car maker in the United States, of course, is Tesla. Elon Musk, the owner of Tesla, you may have heard, is passionately anti-union. The Tesla plant uh, is in Fremont, California, in the East Bay. This has been, you know, union country for decades. Uh, And I think Sean Fain and the UAW know about Tesla. I think they've heard of it. And I think one effect of being able to cover uh, workers at battery factories and at EV factories uh, is that they they then can go to uh, Fremont, they then can go to Elon Musk's employees and say, hey, you guys uh, can get a better deal uh, because we already have a better deal for our members who are making the same kind of electric cars that you guys are making. And that's the roll the union on aspect of the focus that the UAW has and has to have on uh, electric vehicles. And of course, Elon Musk also knows about the UAW. He said recently, quote, Tesla factories have a great vibe. We encourage playing music and having some fun, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment on how much fun it is to work for Elon Musk. Well, historically, working for Elon Musk has been something of a high-risk proposition, as over half of the former employees of Twitter can attest. There ain't no job security in Elon Musk land. And assuming that the folks who are making Teslas are normal people, which I think is a safe assumption, the idea of job security is, is, is probably one that appeals to them. Before we let you go, I wonder what your thoughts are about Israel's war with Hamas. I should say we are taping this interview on Monday afternoon. Yeah, well, since each day the news just gets grimmer and worse, I'm glad at least you said we're doing this on Monday. No, I mean, it's a kind of an apocalyptic state of affairs right now. I will say this. There is one thing that uh, I think oddly enough unites Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas, which is none of them are all that keen on having Palestinians vote. Obviously, Israel just doesn't really recognize the Palestinians in either the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. They have really no effective sovereignty. Uh, The Palestinian Authority last held an election in 2005, and Hamas isn't really keen on elections at all. And so uh, having won there once, uh, again, like 17 years ago, you know, I'm not entirely sure that the folks in the Gaza Strip, uh, understanding the severity of the reprisal that what uh, the Hamas attacks was sure to produce, would really have said, yeah, okay, go ahead, do this. I view the justice of the Palestinian cause and the political entities who are representing it and what they do to be two really separate entities. Unfortunately, they are. And uh, barbarism is barbarism, and it can come attached to uh, a cause which that notwithstanding is, is, is a very good and necessary cause. And I 
I'm somewhat surprised that some people on the left think, well, now is the time to make the Palestinian case. I think the Palestinian case has not exactly advanced, quite the contrary to most people, at least most people in the West, who are totally supportive of Palestinian autonomy, still as an inherent just revulsion at what, what we've seen in the last several days. Harold Meyerson, you can read him at the American Prospect. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. Elon Musk is everywhere. A Google search for him produces 369 million results. How should we understand him? Is he just the latest in a long line of robber barons? For comment, we turn to David Nassau. He's an emeritus professor of history at the CUNY Grad Center. His biography of Andrew Carnegie was a bestseller and a New York Times notable book. His most recent book is The Last Million. Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. We talked about it here. He's written about Elon Musk for the New York Times op-ed page, and other work of his has appeared in the Washington Post and The Nation. David Nassau, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. 369 million Google results for Elon Musk. I went through the top 12. The SEC is suing to compel him to testify on his purchase of Twitter. Tesla is currently under investigation for allegedly lying about the battery ranges of its vehicles. He says his spacecraft could land on Mars in three to four years. Forbes says his net worth grew by $10 billion last Wednesday, reaching $260 billion, even though he paid $44 billion for Twitter and it's now worth only $9 billion. In Variety reports this week that Warner Brothers wanted to fire his former girlfriend Amber Heard from the Aquaman sequel, but Musk had one of his lawyers send the studio a scorched earth letter threatening to burn the house down if the actress was not brought back for the sequel. So they did. That's some of this week's news about Elon Musk. In your New York Times essay on Musk, you describe him as a jokester, an entertainer, a troll, a provocateur, and an Orwellian big brother whose smirking visage is inescapable. Is that the way you described Andrew Carnegie in your award-winning book about him? No. Elon Musk is sui generis. There's no way of comparing him to other robber barons. This man was different and in many ways more dangerous. Why do you say he's more dangerous? I find Musk more dangerous than Carnegie or Rockefeller or any of the other moguls of the 19th century and early 20th century because he is in control of a medium that allows him to reach more people on a daily basis than any of these guys, that allows him to mold public opinion, to distribute misinformation, and to take advantage of the pullback of the regulatory state that had been weak, but in place during Carnegie's reign and Rockefeller's reign. There is no progressive 
pushback. And there's no political pushback to say that, that there should be some form of federal regulation, at least commensurate with the amount of federal dollars that flows his way. Let me add to your litany of current Google episodes on what this man is doing. In the last three days, ever since the Hamas incursion and the Israeli reaction, Musk has been a constant and continual driver of misinformation through his X platform. And this has been noted by CNN, by the Washington Post. But what Musk does in these situations is he says, I'm sorry. And then he goes right back and does it again and again and again and again. Let me mention one other danger which he poses that earlier moguls did not pose. Not even William Randolph Hearst, who I've written about, and who controlled a vast number of public information sources from newspapers to magazines to newsreels in the first half of the, the 20th century. What Musk has done to elevate his importance and the importance of non-regulated sites which regularly offer misinformation and disinformation is he has spent years now going after those sources of information from network television news to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Guardian, and told his millions of followers, don't believe anything you hear, anything you read, trust me. <laughs> Regrettably, for reasons I will never understand, they do trust him. So he is amplifying his own voice while diminishing those other voices, which makes him more dangerous than we could have earlier imagined. Well, I want to talk more about Twitter, but first I want to start with Tesla. If you think climate change is the most important issue facing humanity, if you think the transition to renewable energy is the most important action we can take, then let's face it, Elon Musk's Tesla is a huge force for good in the world today. He transformed the e-car into something attractive and desirable. He spent a lot of energy on improving batteries. And just this week, Tesla has cut its prices to compete directly with gasoline-powered cars. So Musk, by creating and producing Teslas, is doing great good for the future of the world. Or is that giving him too much credit? That's giving him too much credit. I think the analogy here is Amazon. Amazon, in the beginning, Jeff Bezos in the beginning, we saluted him because he made the buying of books easier and cheaper for all of us. But at the same time, what he managed to do was to make it more difficult for other online booksellers and for bookstores to continue to thrive. What Musk is doing is he's not simply lowering the price of his electric cars to compete with, with gas-driven cars. He's doing it because he wants a monopoly over electric vehicles. 
is a proponent of Tesla. He is not a proponent of electric vehicles in, in general. Because again, like Bezos and Amazon, he's selling these cars at an enormous loss. And unionized manufacturers cannot meet the prices he said. He wants to drive them out of business as Bezos did the bookstores. And as Bezos then did any number of other sellers of consumer goods. And I want to talk also about Musk and Donald Trump. If you think the greatest threat to American democracy is Donald Trump, Elon Musk uh, is, is on the right side. In that Walter Isaacson biography published a couple of weeks ago, Musk says he would have voted for Joe Biden in the 2020 election if he had bothered to vote. He characterized Biden as, quote, boring as hell, but described Trump as, quote, kind of nuts and a con man. He also told Isaacson that Trump was, quote, the world champion of bullshit. I assume you are with Elon Musk on these points. Yeah. yeah. Musk is, he's a crazy for a meritocracy. He knows that Trump is a moron, is a fool, is a man who is incapable of learning anything. And of course, we have to talk about space uh, travel, his other response to climate change. But I, unlike Tesla, I don't think Musk's rockets run on wind and solar power. But it's because the Earth is getting too hot, he says, that we should go live on Mars, because I guess it's nice there. We're told by Walter Isaacson that Musk pushes employees at his companies to slash costs and meet brutal deadlines because he needs to pour resources into the moonshot of colonizing space in Musk's words, before civilization crumbles. If I don't make decisions, Musk explained, we die. What do you make of his obsession with colonizing nearby planets? I disagree with Isaacson on, on one basic principle. Isaacson believes that Musk is mission-driven. He's not out to make a profit, not out to become a gazillionaire. And, you know, he wants to save the planet by diminishing the use of fossil fuels. And, and in the event that he fails, <laughs> yes. or that there's a nuclear war, which is why he first talked about going to Mars, or the Earth becomes uninhabitable because of climate change, he wants to be able to colonize Mars. He also believes that an interplanetary civilization is going to be much smarter than a civilization living only on one planet. It's totally nuts, totally out of whack. And I think that this mission is important to him, but what's more important to him is making money. He says that he wants to make all this money so that he can go to Mars. No, he's trying to make all this money because the more money he has, the more powerful he is and the more better he feels about himself. You've emphasized his differences from former media billionaires and robber barons. I have to say, 
getting his former girlfriend into the sequel of Aquaman is very much like William Randolph Hearst getting his girlfriend, Marion Davies, into MGM movies. You wrote a book about Hearst. Is, <laughs> is no, Musk that, the new Hearst? No, now I've got to defend Hearst. <laughs> Marion Davies was a terrific comedian. She had extraordinary talent. She was the sweetest woman in the world. Everybody loved her. It becomes clearer and clearer that Amber Heard is toxic, poisonous, dangerous, and not a very good actress. So no. <laughs> and, and, you know, according to Isaacson, and on this, I don't doubt him, Amber Heard destroyed Musk's life, you know, sent him into a tailspin, he couldn't cover from. Musk's brother and everybody around Musk said have nothing to do with this woman. So why he wants to? I, I think this this stuff with Warner Brothers is another way for him to say, look, I am the most powerful individual in the world. I've got more money than anybody else, and I've got millions of followers on X. Don't mess with me. I want to control the world. It's a power play. In the end here, Elon Musk seems to be weird and unique, but you say uh, it's a mistake to see him that way. You say Musk is now the face of 21st century capitalism. Why is that? One, we don't know where his money comes from, okay? He has been able to escape all regulatory efforts to tax him, to manage him, that frightens me. And he's the face of 21st century capitalism. I fear, I, I fear because he is reconverting the capitalist owner into this authoritarian who can do whatever the hell he wants. And why? Because he says he's a genius. His rationale for ruling his part of the world is that he was born not with a throne, but with genius. In addition, he's the face of 21st century capitalism because he thrives on publicity, on images. And let me just add, he's created a tribe of followers, of fanboys who will do anything he asks them to do who will keep his Tesla stock high, who will go after people who criticize him, who will buy crypto when he tells them to, and more. David Nassau, he's a biographer for Andrew Carnegie and William Randolph Hearst, and has written about Elon Musk for the New York Times op-ed page. David, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.